0: Welcome to Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, a podcast hosted by RCL Code, the show that brings you illuminating interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders throughout all corners of the real estate sector. Each episode will feature different masters in real estate, revealing challenging lessons they've learned, their secrets to success, and opinions regarding the state of the market. Hello, this is Joshua Bourne, Managing Director of Strategic Initiatives at RCLCO Real Estate Consulting. If you're a regular listener to our podcast, then you know that since 1967, RCLCO has been the first call for real estate developers, investors, the public sector, and non real estate companies seeking strategic and tactical advice regarding property investment, planning, and development. Welcome to the latest episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate. Today, I'm talking to Eddie Lauren, co founder and CEO of Alliance Strategic Development. Alliance Strategic is a multifamily real estate investment firm focused on the acquisition and preservation of affordable and workforce housing communities in diverse markets throughout the U.S. Their socially responsible multifamily investments directly and positively impact the daily lives of residents. Through the course of his career, Eddie has successfully acquired more than 200 properties, 40,000 units containing over $4.2 billion in real estate. Eddie earned his bachelor's degree from the University of California, Los Angeles, go Bruins, and has been a licensed California real estate broker since 1988. He's a member of the EIG and the Novogradic Coalitions for Opportunity Zones. Eddie, great to see you, and thanks so much for joining us as one of the best minds in real estate.
1: It's an honor to be here, Mr. Josh. I
0: appreciate it, and uh, for everybody out there, Eddie and I have a great relationship. I think we've known each other for uh better part of a decade now, at least north almost six years, I'd say, and we met, uh, man, I can't imagine or going to a conference in Los Angeles or a multifamily event nationwide where, where we haven't bumped into each other. You're, you're a grinder and a hustler and I appreciate always seeing you at these things.
1: As are you. Look at you, you get around, man. Like minds, right? And and
0: appreciate you joining here. We'll probably start at the beginning. I know our guests will have plenty they'll wanna learn about. I think the affordable and workforce housing piece, especially with everything going on in the country is gonna be a, a big topic of interest. But maybe taking a step back, just give us your story. Let's start from the beginning and, you know, a brief description of both your life and professional work history.
1: Well, I was born in Long Beach, California of moderate means. My father died when I was 10 months and my mom when I was 17. So I was orphaned then and went off to UCLA. And, you know, we always struggled to make ends meet, but we came from a loving home, three older brothers who were very influential in my life. And it's been quite a road, you know, I've learned a lot. It's hard. You know, I had a mentor once who told me anybody can do it with money. The question is, if you don't have any money, how do you do it? So scrapping and building a portfolio and taking the hard knocks has been probably the most important lessons I've been learning. And I actually even got into a NYU Stern for a graduate school after UCLA. And it was 1992. And 1992 was really tough in LA, real estate and the recession and I decided that sticking around and learning from the hard knocks is way more important than getting that MBA. You know, I, I've always been a street fighter and um, you know, I learned a lot through the years and uh really excited to be in the position where we're at to build now. I've never been a developer, so I've bought and and sold and value-added many old properties. We take blight and make light, we like to say. And, It's kind of fun to be a developer. We have about 1,700 units now that we're developing of LIHTC and low-income housing tax credit and market rate developments of workforce housing and uh, try to still give people a clean, safe, affordable place to live, treat them with respect and dignity. They stay, they pay, they refer their friends. It's a very simple business, but we can get creative on different ways to create value for our shareholders and, of course, for the resident who pays our bills.
0: Absolutely, and and I think your mission and value aligns well with what RCLCO does. The foundation that we have here that that tries to focus on housing opportunities, in particular. Just going back a little bit to that uh, that career you mentioned, so I, I think you uh, you know you started in real estate in what they in, in late eighties, and and you mentioned a mentor. Can you just share a little bit about that? I think mentorship in this space is so important, and I'd love to hear kind of who helped you get to where you are today.
1: Well, there were a lot of them. A lot of crazy ones and a lot of great ones. One of the most famous godfathers of all is Stanley Black in uh, Beverly Hills. We all idolized him. I love to imitate him and say, make the deal, make the deal. You know, he he was just really very straightforward and very easygoing and no bullshit. Can I say that? You'll edit it. It was great. And then I've I've had other mentors um, in my life that were a little bit taught me what not to do. I worked for a crazy guy named Nathan and we bought 25,000 units from the late 90s leading up to 2007. He got a little greedy. We were supposed to do a, a 144A with Friedman Billings, Ramsey, the old um, concept of pre-public and we were poised and ready to go with the team and he decided to pull the plug cuz he never wanted to be public in the first place. And I moved on and the team we had assembled there started over and started strategic realty capital in 08 09. And we were buying value add apartments in the 20s per door, which was amazing. In Texas and Vegas and Florida, we were everywhere and ahead of the curve. So I've always been kind of a trailblazer. Sometimes the pioneer gets the arrow. So I got plenty of wounds to show for it. But what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That's for sure.
0: I like that one. Yeah. And I want to get into the, because I think at Alliance, what you really focused on and strategic realty was your preservation strategy and focusing on live tech credit deals and whatnot. And talk about that in a moment, maybe just going back to the, uh, you know, the run up in the, in the crash. I mean, I think one of the notes you had told me in advance was that you guys at that time were maybe what, 95% leveraged, leveraged heading into 2007. What's it like going through that kind of getting pegged all the way down to the bottom and then building back up under this new organization?
1: You know, the whole goal was anyone. He's the guy who told me anybody can do it with money. He didn't have any money. So he put together all these deals and we structured, financed, you know, we got up to 95% leverage with often four and five tranches with the names of Lehman, Bear Stearns, Solomon, and uh, some of the other characters leading up there to like rate investment trust. And um, so it was a very interesting time. It was crazy. We were trying to aggregate as much real estate. And so, if you have two billion dollars worth of real estate, and it's ninety-five percent leverage, what's the equity? A hundred million, right? Well, our fearless leader wanted five hundred million. So, you know, he never wanted to go public anyway. So, we ended up uh, crashing and burning. And I actually said, "I'll stay around," but he said, "No, goodbye." And I said, "Okay, see you, dude. God bless you, and good luck." And then our team went off and started GG Guilty Capital. And it was pretty hard in the 08, 09. That was really tough. We were buying houses at the courthouse steps. There was really nothing. Everything was seized. You couldn't even shake loose a deal. And then the first deal came along and it was kind of a Homer deal owned by GE Capital in Vegas. And I literally got in the car at 4 a.m. because the broker said, you haven't seen this and I'm taking another offer. I'm, so, And I actually knew GE because I had you know, a lot of lender relationships based on having done all of that financing. So got in the car at 4 a.m., got to the Vegas at 8.30, said, OK, now I've seen the deal. And then I called GE and said, I, I got in the car. He said, you did? Are you kidding her? I said, yeah, we want this deal. And we got it at 22 a door.
0: I love it. I mean, also, you, you're a smart enough man to know LA traffic. You got out before it and made that four-hour trek to Vegas out of the seven.
1: The worst thing is when brokers try to homer me. I always try to outsmart them, but straightforwardly. I'm not trying to be clever. I just give me a fair shake. If I was outbid or I lose, I'm a man. I can take it. But look, don't homer me. No, I
0: love it. You're like a phoenix rising from the ashes. I love these stories of, you know, the folks who have gone through that, uh, the great financial crisis and, you know, lost a lot, but have found a way to really to to grow and be successful since then. And I think you obviously had a particular expertise and a focus on an asset class that I find very interesting and that now, given where we're at today with a lot of the wealth disparity and everything that's happened in particular in the last couple of years with COVID and whatnot, really, I think is top of mind to folks. And so maybe just talk a little bit about why workforce and affordable housing? What drew you to that? Was it just the deals? Was there a mission component or a value component as well that were an ethical and moral component that also felt that pulled you in?
1: How about E, all of the above? So I, um, as I said, I came from moderate means. And I remember what it was like to count pennies and have a treat to go to Jack in the box, $2.12. I, you know, you tell you all kinds of the stories. But the point is that I was always filled and and surrounded by a lot of love, a lot of great mentors, and a lot of good people. And not everybody has that in this world, and not everybody has a leg up and the opportunity to do what others can do. And like I said, anybody can do it with money, but if you don't, how do you survive and thrive? So I always had kind of a passion and uh, empathy for the underdog, and I always Believe that everybody needs a clean, safe, affordable place to live. You know, so many slumlords out there have neglected properties, and over the years, I've seen the greenest of pools, siding coming off. You know, all the elements that you you might as well be homeless, living like that. And so, it was always really important to me to give people real value, and that's not just the resident, but of course our shareholders. And then that's how we make money. So it is impact-driven. I feel like I've been an impact investor for you know, for 20 years. And all of a sudden, everybody's talking about impact, right? What the hell? I mean, but that's okay. It's it's all good that everybody comes along and starts doing well by doing good. And so I've been banging this drum for a long time, kind of a mad scientist, self-proclaimed of affordable housing, coming up with different creative structures. Like I did the first NOAA deal in Los Angeles in Koreatown, bought 50 units, uh, old bricker, 100 year old and Deemed it affordable and and it's home, housing the homeless through various social agencies. So I'm proud of that, even though it's been challenging to say the least to get, you know, everybody on board in our lovely city and county and state. But, you know, I keep fighting, keep slugging, decided to. Team up with Alliant Capital, you know, one of the largest private syndicators of tax credits in the country. And Sean's a good friend. And he actually um, just sold to Walker Dunlop, which is which is great. So now I'm in partners with Walker Dunlop, which is a new experience for me as well. On the preservation strategy we started back in 14. Again, we were ahead of the curve, other than Daryl Carter. We were the only ones doing preservation of year 15 Litech you know, low-income housing tax credits, because that's when the tax credit investor goes away. There's an opportunity to buy and preserve that affordable housing because you had a long-term tail from 15 to another 40 years affordability, yet they were neglected and tired. So the affordable housing business is more fee-driven in the beginning. So these properties do get long in the tooth in year 15, and need revitalization and creativity so that's on the affordable side and and workforce you know i've always said that la and we're building in sacramento and in vegas we want to deliver a product that's maybe smaller with less parking but we want to give it to them at at least 20 percent discount to luxury and that's the new business plan so we're excited to deliver some stuff in the valley and if luxury and warner center is one bedrooms like $2,800. we are going to deliver a, a one bedroom for 2200 thanks to RCL Co. And your uh, analysis, you guys have been a great partner for us. And uh, studios around 1700 So at least I get all the amenities everybody gets. You got a roof deck. You got all the community areas and real nice appointments in your insides, a washer dryer in the unit. But you're going to save a lot and you can live in your first apartment alone.
0: I think that was one of the things when we started doing work together. Always, um, I always appreciated about you is that you had the the moral compass to try to make this happen, and yet we're also finding ways economically to make it happen and make the deal work, which could be tough. And as you said, maybe it's being uh, one of the trendsetters or being ahead of the head of the game a little bit. I'm sure you're finding yourself with more competition in the space these days. And I'm curious. I mean, what factors have changed in the business maybe over the past five, 10 years, and how have those factors affected your business both in terms of what you're doing, how you were doing it, and and the competition you're seeing out there now?
1: Well, there's a lot of capital that's coming in and chasing deals that really didn't exist five years ago. So the good news is real estate as a category used to be, if you remember, it was an alternative investment. And a few years ago, it changed. So now everybody's allocating real estate. So that's what's driven this whole thing. It's, It's now okay to invest in real estate rather than An alternative, along with solar, along with uh, even some of the um, venture capital was considered an alternative investment. So the fact that we have our own category is wonderful. We've grown up. That's great. But it's driven a lot of competition and driven yields down. Interest rates have helped us. So that's kind of been a mitigator to that. And capital is getting a little cheaper, not cheap enough for affordable, which we can get into. Which is what my new mantra and crusade is that uh, we have to do. But really, the costs have risen tremendously. We, you can't get appliances, you can't get wood. I mean, we've seen wood was like a, an up and down uh, cycle, at least it's stabilized. But then, you know, steel's a problem. So if it's not one thing, it's another. But, you know, that's where the scrappy and the, the agile survive. And you got to be creative because the bottom line is, Everybody needs housing and especially on the low end.
0: Yeah I don't want to come back to that piece about how do you make those deals work that include or have affordable inclusionary housing and but I think uh, even before that, how do you focus I mean given how much time there's only in a day and how much competition you're seeing now, how do you prioritize both your time and which of those projects to pursue? Where do you really or have you come up with a an ability to say, this works, this doesn't and here's here's how I'm focusing?
1: Sure. I mean that's why I've stayed with apartments and workforce apartments and affordable. So I have an incredible team across Alliance GG development, uh, ex developers and we have a few architects who used to work One you used to work for Caruso. I mean we just have a phenomenal team. So I rely on them a lot and I get to do the fun stuff in creative structuring. And then on the light tech side, we hired a, another fellow named Scott from competitor and uh he's just done phenomenally in creating opportunities and creative structures. We're proud to say that we were the first company to get an RFP from a school district to build faculty housing in a tech manner. And so that's up north in Silicon Valley, and we're, we're really excited about that. And um, I've always strove, striven, looked for how do we get creative financing and do that gap financing that's cheap enough. So let's get into it cuz that's what I'm trying to crusade about is, you know, if you're going to cap rents and you're going to be 100% full forever, something has to give. So market rate returns in the teens are not realistic. Now, on the equity side, uh, you know, from a building point of view on workforce, we can deliver those returns all day long, but when it comes to light tech, we need some of the foundations and wealthy endowments and founders to come together and I'm calling out to the universe here. And I've been trying for many, many years through USC to come together and figure out how these foundations will all get in a room with me. And I will tell them how they can get a tax-exempt opportunity and fill that gap. But it's going to be 2 and 3% tax-free. It's not going to be 9%, 10%. It's just something has to give when you're delivering uh, discounted rents. But again, the lower... You know, you're at the top of the capital stack, so people think, oh, my God, I need a risk-adjusted return. Well, the fact is your rents are $1,000 below market, so it's not that risky. And that's what we need. So hundreds of thousands of units are not being built across the country, let alone in LA, because that gap funding, which used to come from the government, is not there anymore. So the private foundations, the wealthy institutions, and everybody has two buckets, the charitable bucket, do the right thing. And of course, the market rate bucket, investing in workforce is also important. But right now, I'm really focused on trying to make these affordable housing LIHTC deals work. And oftentimes, there's 10 to 20% of a gap financing between the bonds that you get, the tax credits, and then there's only a little bit left that we need to bridge the gap. But if you get government funding and are lucky to do so, Well, that's when prevailing wage kicks in. So now the goalpost just moved. So with rising costs and union labor, we're all for union labor. That's fine, but not when it's affordable. So I mean, it's like there's so many competing ends. And that's why things are more expensive to build. And if you're going to cap the rents to affordable, because remember, nobody should pay more than 30% of what they make. So if they're making 40000 a year. And 30% of that is only twelve thousand, so that's a thousand a month. Okay, either we need more vouchers to supplement that, or we need soft equity or, you know, cheaper capital, to be able to offset that. And that is what people don't get. You know, and they say, oh, well, that's so risky. Well, yeah, you could say that, but it's really not when rents are so low. So this is what needs to happen. And I guarantee you, if everybody got in the room, and put things together, we could change the world and have some incredible housing opportunities for everyone.
0: I love the platform. I mean, and I think, you know, without giving away too many of your trade secrets, I mean, is the pushback typically always, is it just on the return side? I mean, I know there's that balance between returns and doing the right thing. If you have those folks in the room, what do you want to say to them? I mean, how do you overcome that out of curiosity? Can you share that?
1: What needs to happen, I mean, let's decipher between a market rate investment and what I call a PRI, program-related investment. If you're a foundation, you can either, let's say you've got the Josh Foundation, it's a billion dollars. The IRS says you need to give away, you must give away 5%. So $50 million needs to go within your mission, and most missions include poverty, right? That's housing, it's not a hard leap to make. So you can give it away as a grant or or donation or you can invest in a low interest loan like what I'm talking about so if you invested 50 million dollars at 2 or 3% rather than giving it away not only are you doing something sustainable but that stays on your balance sheet so now you're Josh you're a billion 50 foundation so you've created an evergreen balance sheet opportunity and you're using the money For you know, you give a man a fishing pole and you know that whole shtick. Well, this is what it is. You give people the opportunity to build and make it sustainable, and fulfill the needs that the government can't step in to do anymore. And everybody wins. And that's what I would tell foundations. Now, if you're just set up as an individual, I'd say, come, let's work together and do a seed opportunity, a hundred million dollars of tax-exempt bonds will go to the bond authorities because we're doing recycled bonds now on stuff in the valley with 20% at 50% of AMI anyway. So I would create a bond issuance with one of the major banks. And so Josh invests, you know, 10 grand, and now you get 10 grand of tax-free bonds. And that would give you a yield of two to 3%, which is all we can pay. But then Lo and behold, after year 15, we can sell the property and you can get another kicker. So there's a way to structure things. So imagine getting after tax or before tax, 8% after tax, 6% or the opposite, 8%, you know, after tax. That's pretty damn good. So this is a mentality shift, and we need a you know what a QCIP is a bond. So it's not like I can go to the foundation, even the RC Alco Foundation, and say, Hey, invest with me. And like, wait, I got to do due diligence. You got to look up your Keister. We have this consultant, like RCL Co is a consultant for Calsters, right? So there you go. We have all these people that are gatekeepers. Nobody's going to diligence me. But if I have the ability for Josh to call Merrill Lynch, your broker, and say, hey, buy QSIP 45326, and I want to buy $10,000 worth of affordable housing bonds that's tax-free and it would give me an overall yield in 15 years of six and then after tax of eight, wouldn't that be cool? The problem is you have to start.
0: It's a long time frame, but you've got to get in with people. And I think one of the things I love when I talk to you about this and you have so much passion for it, which is great. And I always appreciate that people with passion and I love, I love talking through the numbers with you and whatnot. And this is kind of how I am. I'm, I'm an aggressive, passionate person as well. I mean, Do you view any of that as a vulnerability? What is your greatest vulnerability? How do you compensate for some of that?
1: Look, no good deed goes unpunished is unfortunately been one of the negative mantras of my life. I am passionate. I go for it. And, you know, not everybody sees life the way I do. And I am too nice. Sometimes I'm too generous. I'm too idealistic. And by being a trailblazer, you know, the pioneer gets the arrow sometimes. So, you know, the wounds, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I really believe that. But, you know, a lot of people don't understand me. At least my wife and my children do and my family. So, and my friends, but, you know, out in the world, I'm kind of a screwball. I have different ideas. I'm very straightforward. I'm very aggressive and I'm very honest with someone, whether you like it or not. So like my mother used to say, took and tish were Jewish It means put your ass on the table. And that's what it was. And don't hide anything.
0: Yeah, I've always appreciated and it goes back to where we've sort of met some of these Jewish organizations, real estate and construction divisions here in Los Angeles. It's been nice to build that bond, I think as well. And you mentioned a couple of things in that last stint that I think are important. One, the family, your friends, your your children. Those are things that I know are most important to you in life, and I'd love to come back and touch on those for a minute. But you also talk about how sometimes You get punished, no good deed goes unpunished. So what's the biggest mistake you've made? And then we'll get back to the good things. I mean, what, or maybe said differently, what's the most difficult decision you've had to make career-wise?
1: I tend to ingratiate myself with people and I treat them all like family. And I had one LP who was really a predator and we did 26 deals with them. And unfortunately the predator bit us because we were too exposed. So I never want to be overexposed to anyone again that they can have such control over me. It's like the banker story, right? Borrow 10 million, the bank controls you. Borrow 100 million, you control the bank. I don't ever want to be in that position. The stress is not worth it. I want harmony. I want equanimity. I want all the, at least at this point in my life, in my mid-50s, I don't want the tumult and the stress of that anymore. And if someone's going to try to burn me, you know, I'll just do one deal with you. I'm not going to do a lot.
0: Yeah, you can tell you care about the people around you a lot. I mean, even going back a few minutes and just hearing how you talk about your team. And I think those great leaders are the ones who recognize where they can excel and more so recognize where to put people around them to excel and also how to appreciate them and make sure that they they all ride the wave together, right? You're stronger as a group than you are as an individual. So let's talk about some, some of the more fun stuff for a moment and more personal stuff. I mean, the things that are important to you. What do you love to do? You mentioned the family side. Maybe tell us a little bit about. Uh, you know, get on your high horse here and get to get to be proud about your children and whatnot.
1: I have two girls. Who one went to Tulane and she is actually graduating after she was a COVID uh, 2020 graduate and they never got to walk. So she's going to walk in 2022, which is kind of cool. And she's at SC in graduate school and very proud of her and social work and she has a passion for affordable housing and and doing the right thing. And so that's cool. And I got another daughter who's just graduated SC. I'm a Bruin, as you said earlier. So, but here we are with SC and my wife, Jane, went to SC. So I'm surrounded by SC. So I've actually been quite involved with the Price School, trying to prove some of these pilots as well. But, um, you know, love being with my family. We eat well. I'm trying to lose weight. So that's a challenge. You know, we're passionate about the charitable work we do. Jane and I Started Happy Foundation, which is Happy Healthy Apartment Property Initiative, where we do health and wellness programming in the uh, properties that we own, and after school, and you know, cooking classes, and all all those kinds of things that give people a sense of community. And we're trying to build community through health. So my wife Jane is very involved in that, and um, just started playing golf. The best aggravation money can buy, I can assure you. (laughs) But uh, getting good at that, meaning a lot of great people doing so. And, and I just I love my life. I'm blessed. I have a wonderful family, beautiful friends. I have a great life. We travel, we try to stay active. And at this point in my career, it's nice to be able to do more philanthropic things. But it's funny how that ends up translating in profitable things.
0: I'm glad you touched on those. I mean, those were the things I was trying to get out of you when I asked that question. I know the charitable piece has been really important to you. And the fact that it's I think instilled values in your family and in your daughters, as you mentioned, they're interested in the same concepts. I think that's, uh, it just shows kind of the man you are and, and, you know, where you focus your time and your energy and that passes through to generation. I'm like you, I'm a big eater. I love, I love good food. What any meals that come to mind right now, top meals that you can remember that uh, that you'd recommend for our guests here?
1: Well, I love almost all food. What I've been working on is being mindful. Like I said, I'm trying to be the wise turtle now. So I'm actually, Tasting every bite rather than wolfing it down. Remember, I came from four boys and a mom, and we had no money. So, when the food went on the table when I was a kid, it was wolf it down, grab what you can, you know, fend for your life. And that has pervaded my whole life to now. And I'm really, really working on trying to, whatever it is, because I love it all, take a bite and put down my fork. And I have lost weight, which is amazing just from doing that. I haven't changed what I eat, I eat whatever I want it's just the volume. You know, you look at the French, they're amazing. They eat all kinds of heavy foods, but a croissants and, but they're all thin. Why? It's just portion control. So, you know, moderation, my wife and I do a a little thing called Musar, which is based in the the Torah. And it's um, basically character traits and trying to follow equanimity and patience and all these things. And we work on that and it's really helped to help me lose weight and stay healthier. So, Yeah. I mean, every day is a new day. That's what's fun.
0: Good guidance for me. Patience is not my best virtue, but I have to be like you a little bit and slow down and things in general. And I, these are, this is all good advice. And I think that's sort of where I just want to head next a little bit is, you know, what advice would you give to someone looking to be a leader in this space or trying to move forward? Is there what that you've learned that you'd want to pass down as well?
1: Do what you say, be on time, be sincere, Don't be afraid to be honest with people. Make sure you communicate and don't be too timid because lack of communication is always the root of most conflict. If people are clear and don't double talk, I think that's the best way to live your life. And then you don't have to worry about looking over your shoulder
0: or easily put no bullshit, essentially, at the end of the day, right?
1: Yes. I'm trying to be nicer about it, but I guess as you get older, you get more (laughs) curmudgeon-ish.
0: Any resources, books, other things that you would recommend for folks who are trying to follow in your footsteps or maybe, you know, follow some of that advice you
1: just shared? Well, I've always been a big Dale Carnegie fan, you know, from the depths of, I didn't have such an easy life. As I mentioned, you know, when I was orphaned at 17, it was really tough. I was alone in the world, even though I had family and a lot of support, I really, you're alone in this world. And when you realize that you're alone in this world, and it's up to you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, that's really tough. And I went through some depressive states, and it was really hard, hard 20s. But luckily, I met my partner in life, Jane, and we had a magnificent family. And all the while, I think the internal work that came, I think, Basically, through memorizing Dale Carnegie's books, I would say that would be the most important Bible.
0: I think that aligns with your uh, last bit of feedback, that communication is key. And I think in today's day and age, especially the last couple of years, what everybody's going through, I think mental health and wellness, the more we can talk about it, put it out there, get everybody to feel comfortable is is only going to be beneficial for, for the greater good. Now, we're, we're winding down on our time here, so I, I have a couple last notes. I have one in particular, just uh, interesting anecdotes or stories. You mentioned I should ask you about how you beat Montgomery County. So I'd love to change topics from the uh, ins- inspirational stuff and maybe hear a little bit from you
1: about that. So the worst thing ever invented, in my opinion, in our business, the rofer, right of first refusal by a government agency. So we found an incredible deal. TIAA was selling it. TA Associates Realty in Montgomery County, Maryland, it was a high-rise, totally you know neglected, and it was a great opportunity for us. We purchased it, and lo and behold, the government, Montgomery County, decided to exercise a right of first refusal. And I'm like, what? So I flew to Maryland. I sat with this fella who will remain nameless. And I literally pleaded with him and said, are you kidding me? I put all this effort, all this time, and you're just going to snipe me? How dare you? Who do you think you are? Why do you want to buy this property so much? What do you think I'm going to do that you didn't want to do or whatever? And he said, well, we wanted to create affordability. I said, I'm an affordable guy. This is NOAA, Naturally Occurring Affordable Housing. I'm here to create affordable housing. And I just am looking for you to, to help me out. And I said, what do you want? And he says, well, we need 60% of AMI, 70% of AMI, and a bunch in between. And I said, fine, what can you give me in exchange for that? A pilot, which is a you know property tax abatement? He says, no, I can't do that. I says, well, can you give me some financing? We're gonna spend $4 million to renovate the property. And he's like, yeah, I can probably do that. And so we ended up doing it. And lo and behold, at the close, which, but funny enough, it was the night of the fires. We were evacuated. The only time I've been evacuated from my house in Westlake Village. I didn't sleep that night. I got up in the morning and we were there, but the government, meaning Montgomery County HOC, was there to buy the property if we didn't close by 12 noon East Coast time. So it was 9 a.m. here. And we slipped past the goalie. We got it closed and we did a victory dance. And that was Really nice to beat City Hall because I never have and before. So that was pretty damn cool. And since then, we did our value add and we refinanced the county out and they still have their affordability. So everybody wins.
0: I love it. A nice little victory. And hopefully went back to a house that was still standing. So maybe a, a really good morning in that case, right? It was
1: just fine. But it was pretty scary. And I'm like, this guy's busting my balls and I'm about to lose my house. God forbid. What the hell? How can this make sense? And it's just, and when the rofers happen, they basically just go to the runner up. So whoever didn't get the property, you know, I would got it under contract. We did our due diligence. They go to the next runner up who didn't get it and they pay them to buy it out from under you. It, it's so corrupt. It's, it's ridiculous, but I beat the system.
0: There you go. I like it. The man wins. Right. So I, that's good to, good to hear. And, uh, You know, we can talk a whole nother time about ESG and all the things happening with climate change and whatnot, but but this was about affordability and workforce housing, which I'm glad you shared. Sort of last comment what's keeping you up at night? And is there any messaging you want to leave our guests with or things to think about?
1: Just trying to find that cheaper capital so we can do what we need to do and get these people off the streets and, you know, move everybody up. There's so much opportunity that, you know, LA, the city, the county, we all need to work together with philanthropy and the state. And if we can all get in the same room and solve the problems together, I think we can end this homeless crisis and the housing crisis. We just have to readjust the way we think about life. And uh, it's really important that everybody get on the same page.
0: I love that. That's, I think, a, a good message to leave our guests with and a great way to go out. And Eddie, as a friend, a colleague, I appreciate you taking the time to join us here. I certainly think you are one of the best minds in real estate. So thank you for being on our program
1: today. Thank you. I'm honored.
0: We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, hosted by RCL Co. If you're interested in learning more about RCL Co, go to rclco.com and follow us on Twitter at rclco. Don't forget to subscribe to new episodes of the podcast and make sure to leave us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for tuning into the show.